weren't for hypocrisy, there'd be no moral leadership at all. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and this is the Editor's Roundtable. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by Walter Russell Mead, Bard Professor, Hudson Scholar, and Editor-at-Large for the American Interest Online. Also with us is Laura Jakes, Deputy Managing Editor of FP News. And finally, we have FP columnist Corey Shockey, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, where she focuses on military history. Recently, in our tiny podcast studio, high above Washington's DuPont Circle, we had the following conversation. Okay, guys, 2015 is over. We've read about it in the papers. We've watched it on television. When it is looked back on in 20 years, what are people going to remember about 2015 and foreign policy? Corey? Looking backward to 2015, people will see is the failure of authoritarian capitalism. Everyone who thought that Chinese and Russians were geniuses and that if only sloppy, slow-moving Western societies uh, had the brisk efficiency of authoritarian governments, that our economies would be great, our foreign policy would be sound. And looking back on 2015, what we're going to see is the Chinese model faltering, the Russians growing increasingly incapable, Egypt taking a path that they will repent of. Wait a second. When you said authoritarian capitalism, I thought you were referring to Jamie Dimon and J.P. Morgan. (laughs) I mean, you know, there's different kinds of authoritarian and different kinds of capitalism. David, what a relativist you are. I'm not. You know, I mean, it's just... I, you know the, the you know we may look back and look back on this year and say this was the year that China didn't have a hard landing it had a soft landing maybe it's not clear to me they've landed i think they're still falling and russia you know i mean i hardly think one can count them they've stopped paying attention to their economy 20 years ago and yet the russians are playing a really weak hand well and have us all very nervous but i think a couple of years from now we will have greater clarity that the freedom agenda has has a basis in prosperity and in long-term strength. Okay. Laura? I'm going to play to the bleeding hearts uh, listenership that we have. I'm going to say that's that, huge, uh, except we have they're all bleeding heart nerds. <laughs> well, nerds or not, bleeding hearts or bleeding hearts. I'm yeah. going to go for the heartstrings here. I mean, who would listen to a foreign policy podcast anyway? Uh, bleeding hearts? Certainly nerds. Nerds. Certainly nerds. <laughs> Certainly nerds. I mean, can you think some, court- might, some might have bleeding hearts, but, but all I think might be nerds. Hello, my fellow nerds out there. I'm well, pretty confident it's the soundtrack for Bard College whoa. dinner parties. Well, you did see that The Onion did, did name Bard as the country's top dinner party school. <laughs> That's what made me think of it, Walter. Is that true? Is Bard the top? Bard is, is the country's top dinner party school. The Onion interviewed a number of our students carrying sort of bottles of wine and bread and recipes around. Yeah, but what and kind of wine? conversation. Was yep. it Boone's or was it like a no, good, robust, no, you, you know, robust Merlot? If your families are rich enough to send you to a place like Bard with that kind of tuition, they're rich enough to teach you not to drink Ripple. Right. I'm still trying to figure this out because the re- the listenership for this thing is like growing, right? And it's for growing fairly robustly. But the question is, how many people out there are interested in this kind of crap? 
Hey, the worse the world gets, the more people listen to people like us. Well, so, we're in good shape. No, exactly. We have a growth business. Or exactly. We have embraced one of the world's most dynamic growth industries. So yeah, for the bleeding go. hearts. Yeah, I was just going to say that probably the large majority of our listenership enjoys wine and probably enjoys wine while listening to us. So yeah. I yeah. encourage that. So uh, drink up and think about the migrant crisis in Europe this year where we have where we have seen 1.2 migrants come from uh, terrible places in the Mideast and in Africa trying to seek better lives in Europe. Now, this is a good idea because I, if you had a drinking game oh, where boy. people had to drink every time somebody said something stupid about refugees on the media, we would all be completely shit-faced. I know you're not referring to what I just said. No. Clearly. No, 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 no. We're, we're all sitting here stone sober. Yeah, exactly. No, there's no chance we're drinking in here, right? So keep going. No, just this is the largest migrant crisis that the world has seen since World War II. It could completely shake up world order, certainly in Europe. Um, in terms of the economy, it has shaken up the politics. We're seeing the ripple effects in the United States now, where it has bled over into the presidential election as to what we're going to do with the 10,000 migrants from Syria and Iraq that we have invited to come here, will or will that not stand in 2016. We'll have to see. But there's 60 million displaced people in the world. Only a million of them went to Europe. But so what are they whining the about? Huh? Yeah, right. Exactly. But that's, you know, in, in some ways, we only care about these things when they happen to rich white people. Laura's making, I just want to describe it for the audience, but she's furrowed her brow and she looks a little bit unsure what to make mm -hmm. of this. I mean, is this really a big news story or is it just the fact that the story lapped up on the shores of Europe? No, I, I, of course I think it's a big news story. When most world leaders come out and say there are people who are showing up on our doorsteps who are just hoping for better lives, trying to get away from war, trying to get away from oppression. And maybe the point is that for the first time we are starting to turn them away in this kind of large number where it has become a political issue that people are now saying we don't want these people. We don't want to help out people who need better lives or, or who are hoping to have regular schools for their children, health care, food, maybe that's when it becomes a bigger news story. Okay. Well, so, Walter, let's pick up on what Laura was talking about. Is it also possible that people look back on 2015 and say this was really a tipping point year in terms of nationalism, intolerance, you know, sort of quasi-fascist statements in Europe and the United States, and that we're actually going to move into a kind of an uglier period as a result of what Laura's talking about? I think we're already in a, a bit of an uglier period. You know, I think we've had this illusion that we could have incredibly high moral values, feel really good about ourselves, and actually not take serious action about problems in the world. And, and by we, you mean President Obama. Well, I do think <laughs> this was the year in which it became clear to just about everybody that President Obama's idea that Syria was not going to metamorphose into some kind of terrible geopolitical issue that would affect important interests of the United States, that calculation has not worked out. One but, of the great wrong calls of the Obama administration. I think that's right. But that's um, – but again, the Europeans had even more this fantasy 
that you can say we're going we're going to declare that every refugee should be settled as a matter of right and we're going to stick to that through thick and thin without then also saying oh and I guess we have to make sure that the conditions around us aren't conducive to the creation of refugees by the millions and that's I think where they've made a that all of these wonderful resolutions about human rights and being hospitable to people are dependent ultimately on not too many people taking up the offer. And you have to make that happen. You can't sit there passively while things break down all around you. Corey, I want to sort of... surprise you, I'm more optimistic than that, by which I mean to say I think that having exhausted the alternatives that both the United States and its European allies are going to realize in 2016 that the best way to solve the refugee problem is actually to make the countries refugees are leaving more hospitable to them. Um, and that Oh, come on. Come on. Corey, this is just not going to happen. We're going to go and make Syria more hospitable. We're not going to do jack anything in Syria. And it's not even just about Syria, right? It's not even just about Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan. It's about places like Yemen, where countries in Europe have said, we don't consider... Yemeni refugees, people who are open to the uh, inclusion that we're willing to give them. Not to mention Somalia, the DRC, Nigeria, Mali, and all these other places. That's exactly right. Right. I mean, you do think, you know, you you do think sometimes about the barbarian invasions of Rome, which were really migration episodes, often peaceful. You know, they weren't battles all the time. But, you know, imagine if the Huns and the Vandals and the Visigoths and the Ostrogoths had all had cable TV up there in the frozen steppes and could sit there and look at lifestyles of the rich and the decadent. I think they would have come faster. One thing that we forget is that if, you're, if you are 18 years old and don't have a job, don't have a future, don't have access to much of anything, and you're politically oppressed and everything— you can watch on TV and see that not everybody lives this way. You're still optimistic, Corey? Yes, I still am optimistic. Well, it doesn't um, cost anything to be optimistic. That's because we live on the East Coast and it's cold, and you're in California sitting in your hot tub doing this podcast. And by the way, it's dangerous to do a podcast from a hot tub because of the electricity. Right, if that microphone slips, Corey, you're in trouble. Yes, I suggest you get back on your treadmill. That's far safer. <laughs> I am still optimistic because I think that um, the very kind of reckless decadence that Walter was speaking about that have characterized not just American foreign policy, but Western foreign policies pretty much since the end of the Cold War, right? If you think back to the, to the Balkans, right? Remember this romantic notion that that we could deliver assistance to one party to the conflict, breaking the siege from the other party to the conflict, and that would somehow be seen as neutral and virtuous instead of preventing the side that was winning from winning the wars. Because our margin of error is so wide in the West, and especially in the United States, 
We have been soft-headed about a lot of our security problems. This is a breakthrough here on this podcast. Uh-oh. Corey is finally and indirectly doing something that people seldom do in the United States, and that's attacking George Washington. Because it was when George Washington said, avoid foreign entanglements, that all of this kind of problem started. Those founding fathers were so damn narrow-minded, they didn't realize the world was our problem. I have two rebuttals to you. Uh, one from Joseph Ellis his magnificent book, Sounding Brothers. You don't want to go too much into Ellis's background, do we? Which argues <laughs> that we do our founding fathers a disservice to put them on marble pedestals and treat them as You're though. doubling it's down your... on the attack on George Washington, <laughs> You're accusing other people of respecting him too much. Well, count me out. <laughs> I, oh, yeah, I got your back. <laughs> count me out. I'm, I am with, you know, with Walter is... here. I didn't know the Republican Party hated the founding fathers, Corey. That is that we actually have to engage the issues of our time. And the second point I would make about uh, not slavishly applying 17th century concepts to our contemporary problems. 18th, Corey. You can at least get the century right if you're going to malign our founders. She was going after John Locke, by the way. I know. Don't you really? Thank you, David, <laughs> right, for right. saving that's, my That's slimeball Oliver Cromwell, right? That's Thank where you you're so going. Thank you so much for that. So, but the second thing is Can you imagine them drunk at Bard listening to this over their dinner party? Anyway, <laughs> they're robust Merlots. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Please pass the Merlot. So, Let's so play the part about John Locke over again. The second part is that when Washington and Jefferson were worried about entangling alliances, there were no other countries constituted as we are constituted. That is a voluntary compact between governed and government. And I do think it changes the nature of our relationship. That would be true if Iceland didn't exist and the countries of Scandinavia, which went into that voluntary compact in about you know 500 years before us. Didn't He's exist. just being mean now. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's okay. We can believe in our Anglo-U.S. mythology. But let's try and bring it back to 2015. As we look back on the year, I'm interested in these stories that were under the radar. Each each of you guys mentioned stories that were in one way or another not the you know main thing that was talked about in the course of the year. Although the refugee story sort of touches upon the reason that Trump and Cruz and those other assholes got to be the kind of assholes that they have been in, 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 in terms of their intolerance and vileness. But what about other stories? Like, for example, when I was in Australia a couple of months ago, they didn't even talk about the Middle East. They didn't talk about the... They were like, what about China? You know, could we look back at They're 20- so parochial yeah, over there. Right, exactly. In that little pond, the Pacific... But, for example, could we look back on 2015 and say one of the big stories of 2015 was this was the tipping point year with Japan going back to having a traditional military because that is what ultimately led to the Sino-Japanese War of 2021 that nearly destroyed a third of the planet? Or am I overstating it? Actually, I think this was the year that Japan faced China down. You know, It was actually last year that China and Japan were having this huge standoff and you know, but actually Abe, I don't think they like to talk about it this way in Beijing, but Abe actually faced China down. This was the year that China pretended it wasn't arguing with Japan and sort of concentrated its fire on weaker targets like the Philippines. 
Right. That's kiss north, kick south. Well, that's interesting. But part of the way Abe did it was he said, we're going to be more aggressive. Exactly. We're going to move. We're going to be tough. We're going to be a traditional nation. And if Japan re-enters the short list of major powers in the world by adopting a you know more traditional military stance, that could be a big deal, couldn't it? The changes go maybe deeper than people see because you look at the role that, say, Silicon Valley has played in American economic development as well as, obviously, our, the military developments of the last 30 years. And Silicon Valley has benefited hugely from defense spending, defense investment into high tech, which has helped generate all of these tools and companies that are then able to make a really tremendous impact. I think the only thing we got out of the moon program was Tang, you know, the astronauts <laughs> drink. But the, oh but the spinoffs from Silicon Valley are immense. The Japanese are looking, I think, at reviving a kind of a new kind of military-industrial complex as a way not only of standing up against China, which they think they need to do, but also revitalizing Japan's technology and its economic position. Lara, Corey, give me another story that was under the radar that you think shouldn't have been under the radar. Under the radar here in white America, as I think you so eloquently put it a few minutes ago. Yeah, okay. The Nepal earthquake, which I think was a hiccup for a couple of days here in the West, but uh, it was massive news in the East. Um, 9,000 people killed, magnitude 7.8. What that's going to do to the uh, Nepal as it tries to recover, as it tries to become a more developing country, is Can massive. you imagine how popular she would be at those bar dinner parties <laughs> with this kind of nerd factoid? It's my earnestness that really sells really, it. You know? really. Yeah, unlike Corey, people are afraid she means it. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> well played. <laughs> there are some beautiful treasures that were completely destroyed in Kathmandu as a result of the um, earthquake. I was there a couple of years ago and was just astounded by how beautiful these these scenes yeah, were. By the way, you know, the destruction of the treasures of Syria and Iraq by ISIS is another story that was kind of underplayed, but those things will never come back. Right. Huge chunks of history have been lost in the course of right. the past year. I would also add the downfall, or at least the crisis of the Latin American left in the last year. This uh. is what an interesting choice. Yes, I agree. This is partly a result of the commodity crash worldwide, which is a big story in itself. But you think about Venezuela, which is really imploding. You think about Argentina, where the right has won the presidential election. You think about Brazil, where the PT government and the economy are imploding. It's an ex-brick now, I think we could say. So we have Ricks, like maybe now. I'm not sure how that works. But anyway, a right uh, and Cuba, I think, is is not cozying up to the United States in this way because it's confident about the future. The implosion of Venezuela means terrible things for the for the Castro model. So in fact, the left in Latin America, I don't know when it's been in this kind of trouble, and it hasn't been because the evil Yankee imperialists did something. Um, you know, the, the Castro people used to say, oh, well, Cuba would be a tremendous success, except, you know, poor Cuba has no oil and also it has this terrible American embargo against it. Venezuela had lots of oil and no embargo. Uh, you know, I think this is a great point because let's look at it. What happened in Argentina? 
left lost the election. What happened in Brazil? The Lula-Dilma foundations were shaken, and it looks like you know there's now impeachment trials underway. And the economy's going the, down. The, and the economy's in crap. Obviously, Maduro in Venezuela has been a failure from beginning. I mean, he couldn't even live up to Chavez. Chavez was a brutal failure. Maduro is a ridiculous failure, although he's a little bit brutal himself. And he's losing ground. The left side of Latin America, interestingly enough, in Chile, which had a tradition... I was talking to a senior Chilean who said that the Concertación, which is the group that has been ruling there for a long time, may not win the next election, that you may have a third-par populist or some other choice, but that is not leftist mm-hmm. and, and moves in a different direction. In Ecuador and Bolivia, you still have left-leaning governments, but interestingly, mm-hmm. they are standing out for the fact that they're not orthodox in, on a lot of those issues. And clearly, in Colombia and Mexico, you've gone in a different direction altogether. So if you look throughout the region, you have had a fairly substantial shift. Right, Lara? Well, I was just thinking about what Walter said a few minutes ago about how this is related to oil and energy markets. And, you know, somebody famous once said, I think he's sitting across the desk from me, that all foreign policy is economic policy. And in the last couple of years, we've seen the price of oil drop from $100 a barrel to $40 a barrel, $35 a barrel, or whatever it is trading today. And so you can see where... The people of some of these countries, Venezuela especially, is saying we are poor, we are hungry, we need more money, and this corruption that's been going on in the government will no longer stand. I think that's right. And I think also, you know, when you have good times come, when the commodity cycle is up, governments can do one of two things. They can spend the money to make everybody happy year to year, and then when the cycle turns, they've got all these commitments and entitlements they can no longer fulfill— Or they can use the windfall to try to engineer the reforms, the systems, everything from better education systems to better infrastructure to cleaning up corruption. So when the bad time comes, they've got something to deal with. And I think we basically saw most of these left governments going the populist route rather than some kind of constructive route. And so now the downturn is hitting them really hard. Here's another foreign policy story that I think didn't get a lot of coverage. Ferguson, Baltimore, the breakdown of society in American inner cities, the fragmentation of the bottom part of U.S. society continuing and the continuing failure of the government to address it. There are fractures in American society that obviously affect America's ability to lead in the world. Corey, still optimistic? Yes, I am still optimistic, but I agree that social frictions and social failures that have been so prominent in American cities this last year really do affect our ability to to tell other people what we think they should be doing in their country, because they will rightly throw back to us and say, you know, don't talk to us about minority rights and representation. Look at the mess you guys make of your own country. Um, to which we need to actually own that criticism. We've seen Iranian Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei say that many times. He gets on Twitter and bashes the United States every time there's another, you know, shooting in Ferguson or in Baltimore, some kind of uh, police or, or brutality against minorities in America. He criticizes the United States harshly on the fact that it's sort of hypocritical, right? We are criticizing all these other countries on human rights violations, and yet they think of it as we doing the exact same thing here in America. I'd give a little historical perspective here, though. You know, you think of the 
the uh, missionaries going to China in the 1830s and saying, stop binding women's feet, stop with the debt peonage. And they say, why don't you stay home and abolish slavery in America? Right. And, in, you know, or you think about the early Cold War. We had segregation. We were, there were still lynching. In fact, in many ways, bad as some of our problems remain and some things have gotten worse, on the whole— America is a society that is closer to our values than we were 30, 50, can, that, That's a bumper sticker. No, no, that. but that's, wait, that's a great bumper sticker. America, not so bad now that slavery and genocide against the Native Americans right. is over. Better than we used to Better be. Better than we used to be. It didn't, and wait a minute, course, Corey, didn't you guys course, use that as a bumper sticker in the McCain <laughs> campaign? Are you better off than you were 125 years ago? <laughs> I do remember the day in which the Boumedian decision came down from the Supreme Court granting habeas corpus rights to prisoners at Guantanamo and John saying it was the worst decision in the history of the Supreme Court. Wow. Um, which was a really great day to do media stuff for the McCain campaign. Oh, I'll bet. <laughs> Big, yeah. um, All right. Hopefully nobody was playing the Dred Scott drinking game. Of not the, or the, they weren't. Or the Citizens United <laughs> or the Citizens United drinking game, if you really want to throw in another one there. Laura, you were about to say something before uh, wait, someone I, wait, wait, wait. No, it's uh, no. probably quite break on this. Yeah, go on. Uh, which is two things. Um the first is yes, of course Americans are hypocritical, but that doesn't mean that our criticisms of others aren't also true. Wow. Like, we need to do better, and others need to do better as well. It doesn't. It doesn't mean that the criticism is illegitimate. And second of all, we do <laughs> also. So we all suck. Right, right. right. Yeah, America, that's my bumper sticker. Actually, America, actually, this sucks. This I think is completely true. That if it weren't for hypocrisy, there'd be no moral leadership at all. <laughs> <laughs> I actually do believe that's true. that. No, that's true. It's true. If it weren't, if hypocrisy is the thing that allows people to try to provide moral leadership yes, exactly. when, despite their flaws. Okay, Laura. And, and the second point I would make or, is Oh, like, my God, Corey. Jesus, is, filibustering is, like crazy. No, you go, girl. Take it. Is that um, we also, we have at least one metric of relative hypocrisy, which is immigration, right? Because people aren't immigrating to Iran in great numbers in order to have the magnificent life that is, is they do not believe they are capable of getting in the United States. So we ought to view immigration as a metric of the, uh, the magnetism, despite our hypocrisy, of the opportunities available in this country. That's true, although, you know, I recall a New Yorker story that ran late in 2015 about former child soldiers who had immigrated to the United States and the life that they were having here in the United States. And I have to say, you know, it's true that we draw people here, but I, I, I suspect if we interview a lot of those that came, they, they would have a, a mixed story to tell. I don't want to be the person that has to persuade a former child soldier to wear a bicycle helmet every time they go. I mean, I, I would think that other than the poverty, the alienations, the, just the cultural whiplash that some people must get coming into this U.S. culture. It's crazy. And yet still better from where they had been coming yeah, from, yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah. I mean, so many people the are— The United States has always been hard. Child seats and all. 
Yeah. It, it, yeah, Corey, it has always been hard, but yet we seem to make it harder for some of our allies and the people that we have worked with and that we have promised immigration mm. to, i.e. the Iraqis, the yeah. Afghanis, the, the people who uh, we said, hey, you come help us as we fight these wars and we will help you come to the United States and provide that better life. And yet, no. Okay, so we're gonna we're gonna we take agree here. we're gonna take four minutes and wrap up. Okay, I'm gonna go to each of you, and I want you to tell me who among the countries of the world had the best 2015, and who among the countries of the world had the worst 2015. I'm gonna go first. <laughs> wow. Iran had the best 2015. Yeah. I think for the obvious reasons, Iran um, is that they're great. Well, oh, no. That's not it. Okay, Ayatollah. <laughs> uh, no, that they, they— H. Washington loves the Ayatollah. It's all <laughs> coming together. President Rouhani can now go tell his public as he faces parliamentary elections in a couple of months that he successfully is on a path to have the sanctions lifted, uh, sanctions that have crippled Iran and um, really swept in his, his presidency— in 2013. We will see if Iran is going to be held accountable for some of the missile tests that they have been making allegedly in the past couple of months. The United States still has not said that this is what the case has been and whether Washington will is not clear yet, precisely for the reason that the U.S. doesn't really want to get involved in meddling in the Iranian elections. Okay. The Iranians. Iranians. And then I would say Germany's had a bad year. Germany's had a bad year with the VW scandal, with the Deutsche Bank scandal, uh, with obviously all of the migrants who have come in. It's helped Merkel to some extent. As she looks as a very moral leader. She's as obviously the person of the year at times, and I think Forbes. But Germany is really grappling with what to do with this million-plus population that has surged the country. Walter? Well, I would say Syria had the worst year. Um, nothing went right in Syria, and... IDPs and refugees and the civil war grinds on. And, you know, now you need, I think Syria needs its own group of air traffic controllers just to provide clearance among the foreign air forces bombing various parts of Syria's <laughs> territory. So I think Syria has really, I don't think there's much contest at the bottom of the, of the ranking. Uh, for the best year, it's kind of hard to say. I think uh, Iran certainly had a good year. Russia, in a very superficial way, had a good year. I would say that maybe the, it was not so great for the Russians, but I think for Vladimir Putin, it was kind of a fun year. He uh, got away with sort of this massive presence in Syria. He's still firmly in control. And bad news for his fellow citizens, but I think Vladimir Putin is not looking back with many regrets on 2015. No, that's for sure. Corey? I want to flip Walter's argument and suggest that Vladimir Putin had the worst year. We just don't have the perspective to see it at the moment. But he is progressively isolating Russia from sources of investment, from friendships, from the benefit of the doubt, having been revealed uh, to be arming, to be sending soldiers to invade Ukraine, to be arming insurgents in Ukraine, the shooting down of a civilian airliner with a Russian-supplied weapon, Russia's unwillingness to take responsibility for its mistakes, whether they are bombing hospitals in Syria or anything else, means that he has collapsed 
both the benefit of the doubt and any credibility for himself going forward. And I think in 2016, the friction between what Putin is doing and his ability to sustain it, either domestically or in foreign policy, is going to come due. As for who has had the best year, I struggle a little bit. Despite my optimism, I struggle to think of who's had a really good year this year. I guess I probably agree that the Iranians have gotten away with more than anybody else in the international order. David Cameron had a pretty good year, winning an election people thought was a death watch for him, and holding the British economy together, outperforming anybody in Europe. And and it looks like he has been uh, limber enough in his demands for revision of Britain's relationship with the European Union that he might not throw all of his European allies into outrage, but show enough aggravation at the EU that he can hold a yes, let's stay in vote without losing his right. I have to say, that's a weak choice. But I admit it, I didn't have a good one. What about your friends in Canada? <laughs> Those are David's friends in Canada. Uh, look, Canada is the country we all aspire to be, clearly. But these were all good choices. Almost certainly, Walter's choice of Syria is having the worst year, probably right. Although South Sudan and you know a couple of places in Africa may compete. As far as the best year, no contest. Adele, by far. <sighs> What about the Star Wars? That hasn't. Country we Star have Wars? to see how Star Wars turns out. But Adele broke all these records, and Corey's like, "Who's Adele?" Corey's like, "Must you be relentlessly trivial?" Oh my god! <laughs> oh my god! You just look. I'll take Adele over David Cameron any day of the week. Okay? You know what? I have to give you that argument. You did just trump me. Yeah, yeah. right. You, Maybe Trump. That's a good yeah. point. Maybe Trump had the best 2015. Right. Maybe the, he's the Republic of Trump right. was the winner. Um, that's his bumper sticker. Well, if Trump had the best year, then America had the worst year. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you on that one. Because yeah, uh, that's bad news for all of us. I would recommend everybody go Google Jezebel and the you look the list of terms that that they used to describe Trump over the course of 2015. They published that a while back. and uh, Give us a little teaser. I don't know. Human bag of flour, you know, sun-dried tomato. There were a whole bunch. That what about I, dealmaker extraordinaire that didn't <laughs> no, just... I am not sure the old spy magazine description of Donald Trump can be improved upon. Short-fingered was... Vulgarian. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry to step on your punchline there. No, it was exactly right. But of course, you're right. It was the one cultural reference I had. <laughs> right. Corey's greatest accomplishment was a cultural reference to 1989. Congratulations, Corey. <laughs> um, uh, you're really catching on. Okay, totally folks, true. that's enough podcasts. Those kids at Bard are now face down, you know, in their remedial <laughs> civics books or whatever it is that you read it. And, and, you know, basket weaving or whatever they take. It, They're curling bas- up in their Laura Ashley sheets right now. Yeah, exactly. Ex- oh, no, no, no. We don't mean to be mean to Bard. Yes, those poor kids at Bard. 
Yeah. You have no idea what they suffer. You know, do you know what the wind chill is like That's coming off the Syria. Hudson? Someday? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. At least it's not barred. Um, I hate to say this. When I was 15, I read A Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich. I thought, this is so much like winter term at my boarding school. Oh, my God. <laughs> I've matured. I like to think. <laughs> All right, folks, please don't use this against us in taking our thoughtful analysis seriously. Please join us again at some future moment to download and listen to and drink heavily to another episode of the Editor's Roundtable podcast. Thank you, guys, one and all. You have been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm David Rothkoff, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori and Ann Kingston. For more information about FP and to subscribe, please visit foreignpolicy.com. And thank you very much for joining us.